Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now from the United States Border Patrol Academy. This is our podcast where we talk about things that, that are important to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, our families, the people that we serve. And we try to expound a little bit about on uh, some of the aspects of the Border Patrol that are lesser known to the people that we serve. And today, keeping in that, uh, in that vein, we have a very special guest. We have uh, the Chief of the Law Enforcement Operations Director. Now, what does that mean? Uh, We've talked before how we have 22 sector chiefs throughout the uh, the country, which includes the academy and the special operations group. Well, all of those chiefs have to answer to somebody under the law enforcement operations directorate. So there's one person that we all answer to, and that is the chief of the law enforcement operations directorate. And in our case, that is a gentleman by the name of Manny Padilla, who is 35 years a veteran of the United States Border Patrol and, at this time, the second most senior-serving member of the United States Border Patrol. Chief, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you so much, Chief. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump right into it, and I want to talk a little bit about what that job entails. We've talked a little bit about how the Border Patrol is part of CBP. It's the enforcement arm that operates between the ports of entry. And we've talked in previous podcasts about how there are 20 geographic sectors, enforcement sectors, the Academy, and the Special Operations Group. How does that all tie in at the headquarters level into your shop? So, uh, from my perspective, Chief, um, the headquarters assignment, the, starting from uh, Chief uh, of the Border Patrol, the Deputy Chief of the Border Patrol, the different directorates up there, all that we do is to support the men and women in the field. So from the uh, law enforcement uh, uh, directorate, we, uh, we help with the uh, development of strategy. We make sure that that strategy is implemented according to the uh, Chief's uh, intent. Uh, and that's what we do. We make sure that the men and women in the field have the equipment, have the training, uh, are well prepared to do their mission on a daily basis out in the field. So here's one of the things that I think we're very fortunate in the Border Patrol is that no matter what anybody wears on their collar, no matter what their job is, we all started at the exact same place. We worked our way up through the ranks, starting at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy, in most cases at the GS-5, and not making very much money to start off. But then we go off to what we're going to do in our careers. So when we have somebody like you sitting in a chair that is in Washington, D.C., representing the agency to all of our partners and the American people, it's somebody that has been out in the field that has done this job for a long time and has a, an established history with the agency. How does that inform or help you in a position like this? Well, I personally stay grounded with that uh, Border Patrol agent that is in the, in the field, right? So when we talk about uh, the condition of the border, the arrest of sex offenders, the, the arrest of uh, special interest uh, uh, aliens, anything that we see, the operations happening in the field, all the statistics do not come from headquarters. They actually happen in the field when that agent is making that vehicle stop or tracking a, uh, a group of, uh, of migrants and making that interdiction. So truly, what we do is, is be an advocate for that agent in the field and again, make sure that Congress, make sure that our stakeholders understand what that agent is doing in the field in order to uh, advocate for uh, resources and, and make sure that, uh, again, we have them well prepared uh, mentally, physically, uh, and equipped to do that uh, that very job in the field. And so sometimes I try and wrap my head around the operational tempo that goes on there. It's being a sector chief in, in different locations, my phone never stopped ringing. The emails never stopped. You have every sector that you get, anything that's going on at any time of day. You know, we are constantly getting rescues. We're constantly having yes. uh, uh, agents that may be injured or significant arrests. How many emails a day does some of your position get? <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's it's important to know that uh, the headquarters is a team, right? So mm -hmm. so I have uh, we have staff in now the OD that takes care of a, of a lot of the uh, calls from the field. Uh, I get those calls, I get those notifications, as well as uh, the chief of the border patrol and the deputy uh, chief. Um, and it's uh, it's an honor to uh, serve in that role because again, every email or every call that we get. It's, it really translates into like, hey, what can we do better? How can we make it better for that agent in the field? One of the things that, uh, that we do up in our headquarters, and I do it because I really enjoy it, is when we have uh, an, an incident where the agents uh, have a rescue or, or do one of the many historic uh, actions that they do in the field, uh, we take the time to just call those agents and, and 
from a selfish perspective, live our lives through them, right? That's a close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is uh, that that is how we feel like agents because just listening to their stories, how the, how the case developed and the such, and it's a, it, it is again an an honor and it's just a, a very good feeling to to talk to those agents and see what their thought process is as they go through these uh, actions in the field. And like you said, living vicariously through them. We all signed up to be a Border Patrol yeah. agent, so no matter where you go or how far removed you get from it, you miss it. it yes. It, a lot of times you say, I'd, just, I'd rather be that agent that's going out there on patrol and, and doing the job that I came. That's what we hearken back to. That's the good times that we, uh, that we all remember, I think, most right. fondly. So you're here at the Academy mentoring class 1158, which is finally about ready to graduate tomorrow. You're going to be the guest speaker and, and doing a fireside chat for them tonight. And you talked about them, uh, talked to them about a couple things that I thought was pretty important uh, from a perspective standpoint. You said, whatever you're doing, focus on that and do the best job you can. And you said you never worried about what you had on your collar or what position you were going to get to. Uh, that's, that's pretty good advice for anybody in this agency. Whatever they want to do, whatever they're doing in that moment, Focus on that and be the best you can at it. Yes. So absolutely. When uh, when we start as a border patrol agent, you're doing the job at, at the field level. Uh, many a times, you know, patrolling the border, making those interdictions. Totally commit to that uh, mission, that task at hand, right? And I talked to the uh, to the agents uh, that are graduating tomorrow about the circle of influence. So as an agent, you're making. Uh, life decisions for certain people, the people that you encounter. You're making decisions on uh, getting resources together to perform a rescue. All that work speaks for itself. So don't focus on, hey, I need to make the, uh, you know, the next rank. Just let your work speak for itself. And uh, I think for me it's, it's, it's worked well because it's, I just focus on what is in, in front of us and then look for innovative ways in order to get better on a daily basis. And I think if we follow that pattern, uh, again, the work will be recognized and people, uh, you know, people will end up in different positions. But uh, it's, um, I think it's just a good grounding process to, uh, to have. And it's obviously worked well for you. You have, I'm going to go over your, your bio a little bit. You have a, a very interesting career. First off, you started in class 200 of the United States Border Patrol Academy. We're on 1158 graduating tomorrow. But wow. of course, 1159, 1160 graduated ahead of them because of COVID and having to quarantine. And so pushing a thousand classes that have, uh, have come through since, uh, since you <laughs> came in. And so over that 35 year career, uh, you've held three really uh, sector commands, you know, New Orleans, uh, Tucson, and the Rio Grande Valley sector. Those are the two biggest and, and busiest, especially when you were in command of those sectors. So in terms of the surges and the crisis and the traffic that the Border Patrol has seen over the past 10 or 20 years, you were ground zero. You were right there in it. You never uh, planned to be there when that happened. It just it happened, and you had to dedicate yourself toward that task and just do the best you could. Absolutely. So which one... Uh, do you look back on most fondly of all the positions that you've held going and we're going to talk a little bit more about your your bio but what what is the position or the the job that you've done in this agency that that you look back on and think that was it that was a pinnacle for me <laughs> so every position that I've held that I've uh, been uh, privileged uh, to holding uh, I tell you I've enjoyed every position that I've uh, held starting from the uh, field operations supervisor at, at that time Bortec uh, headquarters going from a uh, to a uh, patrol agent in charge assistant patrol agent in charge every position has been very special but you know what makes it special is not the position itself is the people yeah. that we work with the men and women uh, when you form that team and you form uh, that bond and just focus on the mission and you start seeing the results um, and and not that I'm selecting Tucson but uh, Tucson was, uh, I mean, that was just transformational. And there was a lot of work that had been done before I took command of the sector. Um, but uh, it was, we, we reached that pinnacle when we actually started uh, seeing the dynamic of uh, traffic shifting and hold to uh, Rio Grande Valley and, and Tucson calming down a little bit. And, and so when I see the entire southwest border, the nine southwest border sectors, 1,954 uh, miles of border, one of the things that is intriguing to me as we speak today is that since 1997, since 1997, Tucson was the busiest uh, place. And we've been focusing on Tucson, focusing on Tucson. By 2013-14, we started seeing that shift. 
Um, so then we were focusing on uh, Rio Grande Valley and Tucson. So we had two sectors. And what that means to us operationally is that we had resources from the other sectors that we can uh, laterally uh, move to mm -hmm. address the challenges. If you look at the border now, every sector along the southwest border is busy, is seeing increased traffic. And that's that's the difference uh, that, that we have now as opposed to, uh, you know, to uh, years ago, is that we're not focusing with one hotspot, we're focusing on the entire border because everybody's busy. That's very true. I think when, when I came in, it was it was California, San yes. Diego, El Centro, and then it did, it shifted over to the Tucson sector, and then ultimately over to, there was a couple little minor spots in between, right. but basically over into the Rio Grande Valley. There was always that one spot, and yeah, you started to see it kind of disperse now. I wonder if that speaks to the job that we're doing or how we approach uh, border security now. Yes. Well, to me, it's uh, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, 33 years uh, or 35 years of service. Um, again, I've been uh, fortunate enough to uh, have seen the initial planning stages of uh, Operation uh, Hold the Line and then Operation Gatekeeper. But as I look at the uh, entire history, the first strategic plan that we actually had written down on paper was in 1994. It's entitled 1994 and Beyond. Mm -hmm. And and when I look at the uh, the evolution, if you will, of our strategy, that strategy started with Operation Hold the Line in El Paso. And it was, of course, a forward, de uh, forward deployment of uh, agents at that time. And we did. We focused on the, uh, on the hotspots within El Paso sector. You started dispersing the traffic. And as it grew, and we grew in manpower, we grew in resourcing, uh, we were literally seeing the movement from uh, El Paso. We went to Operation Gatekeeper in 1995 era. We went to uh, Operation Rio Grande 1996, mm -hmm. 1997. And then 1997 is when we started focusing on Tucson because that became the uh, the hot spot, right? So it's interesting when you when you see the uh, the entire continuum of the strategies. Uh, 1994 was was the first written strategy, and then of course we had the 2004 strategy, which was post 9/11, and that was a a resource based strategy, personnel, technology, infrastructure. Then we added intelligence and partnerships, and and so you see the evolution. When you're living it, you don't see it um, because it's gradual. But when you take a step back and really reflect on everything that uh, that we've done, uh, the way that we've come, we're way more advanced, uh, a lot more infusion of technology. You know, talking to the uh, new agents here at the academy, the skill sets that they bring, uh, playing with electronics, doing the analytics and stuff, it's exciting. It's very, very exciting. Um, I don't think I have 35 more years to go, <laughs> but I will be uh, watching and see how that evolution continues. So now, if you look at the entire uh, border uh, situation that we have, we surpassed a million apprehensions this year, right? And, and when we look at this surge, now it's time to be more targeted, uh, to make sure that we prioritize the threats and that we just don't become uh, totally reactive to the flow that's coming in because within that flow, uh, you have a lot of uh, economic migration. Um, you have people that are trying to do harm to the United States. You have criminal uh, aliens. You have, a, uh, in Kevin Stevens' words, you have that threat in the mix. And we have to be better at targeting, pushing those borders outward, working with our partners in order to identify who and what is coming to us. So you mentioned Kevin Stevens, of course, a former deputy chief of the yeah. U.S. Border Patrol that's uh, that, that's retired and, and a member of BORTAC as well. You said a lot right now, and I want to unpack that a little bit because uh, for, for the benefit of everybody listening, because what goes on in that mind, you know, that's, uh, with 35 years of experience, uh, let's walk back a little bit to uh, Operation Hold the Line and Gatekeeper and Rio Grande, and you talk about the very first coherent national strategy in 1994 that the Border Patrol did. And you made mention of this earlier. That was 70 years after the Border Patrol 70 years was after created. the Border Patrol was created. This, for me, it's fascinating because that, that is the history and the growth and the evolution of an agency. We're watching it unfold. And that was a complete change in our enforcement posture and how we went about doing business. You, you mentioned the words forward deployed. That is where we had the agents actually go to these hot spots and be visible and deter, is what we said at the end of the day, the traffic from coming across there. And the idea being if, if they saw us and we kept pushing them back, then they just wouldn't cross anymore. Now, that didn't always work to great effect, and we had uh, you know, some pushback on it because we saw flaws in 
that strategy. You know? And I think essentially it was the, uh, the traffic would go and try and cross someplace where we weren't. But it was the first time at a national level we tried to coordinate the sector's enforcement postures. Prior to that, and I've, I spoke with uh, Chief Underdown and Chief yeah. Fisher and then Chief Fatello, the, the sectors were disparate and there wasn't a coordinated effort really at the national level. So this was the agency's first time to really start looking at it as a, as a national border security effort. Right. And so that was our first attempt with Hold the Line, Gatekeeper, and Rio Grande. Those were the forward deployed uh, postures. Fast forward and 9-11 happens and we fall under CBP and you're, you're witnessing all of this firsthand. You're actually, you have an active role in how all of this played out. We have the resource-based philosophy, the strategy under Chief David Aguilar. Mm -hmm. And that was the right combination of personnel, technology, and infrastructure. And during that time, the Border Patrol grew how much? It actually doubled. If you look at the, from 2010 to 2020, we doubled the size of the Border Patrol. But uh, let me go back to uh, 1994 and Operation Hold the Line. I was actually an agent in El Paso when we started uh, Operation Hold the Line. And there was uh, Chief uh, Sylvester Reyes, um, who was a chief there in El Paso, and when we talk about visionary leaders, I mean, uh, Chief Reyes really broke the culture that we had, that we had to allow people to come in, apprehend them, return them, apprehend them, return them. And there was a revolving door, right? And really, if you look at the, uh, if you look at the law, it's a prevention of entry into the United States. So he really just deployed in a form that would prevent entry mm -hmm. instead of reacting to an entry that had happened. Prevent crime instead of Correct. setting a trap Correct. and baiting them. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and it was hard because it was new to the Border Patrol. Again, mm -hmm. 70 years into <laughs> into uh, into the creation of our agency. Um, but I remember vividly that, um, that when we were told about Operation Hold the Line is we would forward deploy, park there, and watch uh, what's the border, right? There was not a lot of context, and it's nobody's fault. It's just that it was something new to us. Uh, so what happened is uh, we took a first step in establishing and maintaining control of a border area, but we didn't have the necessary resources to go wholesale and, uh, and, and start, uh, you know, implement that strategy uh, along the entire southwest border. But as a starting point, you really started reducing uh, the crime uh, in El Paso, the stolen mm. vehicles went down, the, uh, the, the trespassing into, uh, and burglaries, uh, all those crime statistics actually took a downturn. And this is, uh, this is uh, in, in, in my opinion, a huge transformational example of leadership is that before Silvestre Reyes uh, got there, we actually had the Bowie High School injunction because the community was not very accepting of the border patrol because we were chasing people through uh, backyards, through school grounds and the such. Mm -hmm. And truly just changing 180, uh, the, the strategy, uh, the same people that uh, were not too fond of the border patrol were actually bringing us uh, food and drinks to, uh, to the levy because the outcome was just a huge down, downward turn in crime. It was tangible for them. It was tangible. It. They, they actually saw the results. So a anyways, that was, the, uh, that was the start of what we're actually still to this day doing in a lot more advanced form. But from there we went to uh, Operation uh, uh, Gatekeeper, uh, continuing increasing the number of Border Patrol agents. And you fast forward to now, you know, we have uh, 19,555 agents also have a lot more capability and capacity than we ever had. I mean, equipment, the technology, technology, equipment. Yeah. Um, so we have, we're, we're way more advanced and it's still challenging. That's mm. a, that speaks to the complexity of the, yeah. uh, of the, of the border. So uh, again, with the situation that we have in front of us, um, I think we have to be, continue getting better uh, using the technology, establishing that common operating picture. And then again, something that, uh, that we need to, as a government, get better at is this, uh, this whole of government approach. Mm -hmm. um, really having everybody that has stake in the, uh, in the border uh, area come together and establish that common, uh, common operating picture and really the deployment of resources, the joint strategies, the joint uh, assessments, the joint planning, 
uh, all that has to come together and at some point. That's an area that you that you especially are, are, are good in. I want to circle back to that in a second. Let's continue on with uh, from the resource-based philosophy. And we grew in size substantially. Fast forward to 2012 and 2016, uh, we went to the a risk-based approach, mm-hmm. which basically was another evolution. So we, we got all this people and stuff. Now let's make sure we're using it in the right exactly. way. So talk a little about how that differs from the resource-based philosophy. Well, uh, the resource-based uh, strategy, of course, is getting more resources for mm-hmm. the Border Patrol. Uh, and we started that, uh, actually started that in uh, 1994, very Border Patrol-centric. Uh, 2004 strategy, very good strategy, uh, and, and, and on the heels of uh, 9-11, continue building uh, capability and capacity. So here comes uh, 2016. Not that we did not need any more resources, but uh, frankly speaking, uh, I think it was the right strategy at the right time to make sure that we were using the resourcing that we had received throughout the uh, throughout the years, and not only for border patrol purposes, but also in partnerships uh, with other agency and uh, both domestically and, uh, and internationally, right? And I think that refinement got made us a lot better in, in yeah. looking at the border from a U.S. government approach. From multiple angles. From multiple angles. Mm-hmm. You know, you got Operation Stone Garden. You, you have a lot of integrating efforts um, that work across organizational uh, lines uh, and everybody pushing in the right way. That is uh, the piece that we need to get better as a government. And we have some current efforts right now. If you look at uh, what we're, what we're uh, doing right now, one of the, one of the things that the, that the secretary is pushing extensively is we need to take care, we need to address the root causes of, of migration. That's a given, but that's not going to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. But that has to be addressed, right? Um, but what he's also doing is, is uh, in, in partnership with uh, other departments, uh, namely Department of Justice, is creating these task forces to go after the criminal element that is behind the narcotics trafficking, the, the uh, human smuggling, the human trafficking, because every time we see these surges, um, there is a criminal element Behind that it. is profiting, you know, the, 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 the transnational criminal organizations that we often talk about that are making huge money profit off of these, uh, these ventures. And that is who we need to focus on and disrupt and dismantle them uh, and, and take their, uh, you know, their means opportunities away from them so they cannot. See, for me, that was a, uh, in this 2012-2016 strategy, that was another layer of depth to our enforcement posture that, that was added. Prior, we would focus very heavily on the flow itself, the volume that was coming across, to some extent on those that were responsible, but really under this 2012-2016, we really started growing our efforts to target those yes. that are responsible, the transnational criminal organizations, right. and we realized that had to be a team sport. It had to be done with our partners, as you said, international and domestic, federal, state, local, even tribal. Absolutely. And so we started really getting better at that. And that layer of you have the conventional patrols that that interdict the flow, and then you have the operations that are going after those that are responsible. That makes it even tougher for the criminal element to operate yeah. in those areas. And that's what folks like you in command during that time really started bringing to the table. Yes. So... Go ahead. Yes. No, I was going to say, uh, conceptually, it's very easy, right? It's uh, it, combining the investigative interdiction and intelligence efforts, having that joint assessment, having that joint planning, and having that joint execution of operations, all focused on the criminal elements that, uh, that we uh, face at the, at the border. Not to be confused with economic migration, mm-hmm. because um, if we focus strictly on the migration, um, the, the means the uh, the means or, or the actions by the criminal element are still uh, present. It's it's no different than interdicting uh, another commodity like uh, narcotics, unless we had capability to interdict everything, which is not likely. Mm-hmm. Um, we really have to get better at targeting and disrupting and dismantling those organizations. Conceptually, easy to understand. Where the difficulty uh, comes in is uh, is is getting um, the different departments, the different agencies truly focused on a common uh, a common set. Well, because a lot of times our partners, they're 
mission sets or their priorities, and I'll, I'll use, for example, the DEA. Mm-hmm. Obviously, their, their focus is narcotics, as it should be. Right. And so when we try and find a, a joint effort, it has to be something that, that helps their mission and ours. And so, you know, then we talk to HSI, and maybe they have a, uh, a sexual predator out there that they're, they're, that they're targeting, or a network they're targeting. So getting everybody together and finding, okay, where do we get the most bang for our buck and focus our efforts to dis- disrupt, degrade, and, dem- dis- uh, and um, dismantle, dismantle uh, this particular organization. And once we all come together and focus all of our efforts, now you have the full resources of all of those agencies and the full authority of all those agencies. It doesn't matter what we get them on. It may be an immigration yeah, violation. Right. It may be Title 21. It could be tax evasion. Correct. But anything that delivers a consequence and makes it impossible for them to operate, we all win. Yep, absolutely. And I don't like to focus uh, too much on, like, hey, the challenge that we have now. Uh, it's important to focus on where we came from because if I take you back uh, to 1994, um, and then you look at the partnerships and the uh, levels of integration that we have right now, they're a lot, a lot better. But that getting better, you know, going from a, going from a, a good situation and, and making it better, uh, that has to be a continual mm-hmm. effort. That truly has to be a continual effort. Uh, and we made uh, great strides. And then, uh, again, as I mentioned, the secretary is very, very focused on on, on forming these uh, joint efforts and make sure that we're using all our resources. So one of the, the next right things way. they had you do before you became the chief of the Law Enforcement Operations Directorate, you were presidentially appointed to be the director of the Joint Task Force West, and that had to do with what we called the Southern Border and Approaches Campaign. I don't think that's a very visible aspect of, of what we do to the, the public. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and, and kind of what what its function is? Yes. So the uh, Joint Task Force uh, West... It was, um, it was created uh, by uh, Secretary uh, Jay Johnson. Mm-hmm. And again, the concept not being a new concept, right? Having a joint assessment um, through different agencies, looking at the, uh, looking at the same uh, problem set, doing the joint planning and the joint execution uh, with the target being the criminal element that is impacting us uh, on the approaches. So the purpose, um, the purpose of the uh, joint task force, uh, Chief uh, Harris, Robert Harris was the first uh, director. Um, he created some great processes for that interagency um, whole of government, uh, whole of DHS uh, approach. And then once you have that whole of DHS approach linking up with other uh, departments and agencies, uh, he, great, he built a great foundation. Um, that, the Joint Task Force uh, was, I'll say dissolved because it doesn't exist right now, but those concepts and that work that was done in the Joint Task Force is the basis of many of the joint efforts that are happening today. So if you take a look at the Joint Task Force Alpha, uh, it's the same exact concept as bringing different agencies together, doing that joint assessment, joint planning, joint execution of operations. So that's what I'm talking about is at some point we're going to refine, and I'm very confident, we're going to refine that whole of government uh, approach to achieve great results. And to that, I, I'd like to, uh, to bring your attention to uh, the situation that we had with the unaccompanied children. Mm-hmm. So November of last year, um, we could not, uh, it, uh, we ended uh, Title 42 for unaccompanied children. And, and Title 42 is? Title 42 is the, uh, the CDC's, the Center of uh, Disease Control Authority to be able to expel people um, for health yeah, concerns. For health concerns, right? Namely, COVID nineteen. Exactly. So it was it was a uh, uh, an authority that was implemented due to the the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So we knew because we've done this border work for quite a while now that uh, once we ended that, you would likely see an increase uh, in unaccompanied children. And of course, we saw an increase of unaccompanied children. Um, this is a huge success story uh, for me. In the thirty five years that I have been in. I had never seen Health and Human Services, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, specifically Office of uh, Refugee Resettlement, build the capacity that they have, that they currently have. Yes, absolutely. So without that capacity, and it was not easy work. It took a lot of uh, conversations, a lot of difficult conversations. But truly, when the, when the, uh, the whole of government approach came together, we saw that we did a joint assessment, joint planning, joint execution, very simply. Look at the outcome. 
the Border Patrol now is day-to-day -day pretty much uh, with zero or very few unaccompanied, uh, unaccompanied children that are in our custody over 72 hours. And you're, you're right. That, that, I mean, that really is an amazing thing to see. I was just, you know, we have uh, delegates from uh, UNICEF visiting mm -hmm. us today, and we were just talking about that. Uh, they're here at the academy looking at how we how we train uh, our agents and our processing coordinators and talking about that very thing the the entire system has to be able to accommodate the flow that's coming at us and at the very front of that system is us correct we have no choice we can't turn the 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 faucet off so to speak and we can't say no we have to keep uh, taking into custody people that we encounter it's the system behind us that lacked that capacity for so very long that caused the, the log jam, the, the backing up. And now we're starting to see at long last these other elements in the system, ORR, ICRO, to start to expand their capacity. And we're starting to see a relief on our end so that we're not holding people for long amounts of time in places that weren't meant to hold them. Yes, absolutely. And as a government, we have huge capability and capacity. Um, when you truly bring those, uh, those capabilities together, you create huge capacity, and we can deal with any situation that uh, that we have in front of us. I mean, that's who we are. That's who we are as a country. Uh, every challenge that we have, we overcome it. Sometimes it takes a lot of difficult conversations and, and coordination, but at the end of the day, we are going to take care of business. And it just, especially post 9-11, when you, everybody kind of came to the realization we have to communicate, we have to work together because right. if we don't, there are bad people out there that are going to take advantage of that. And that is from the, the smallest of objectives to the very strategic, highest level. So after 9-11, especially whenever DHS came into being and C CBP was formed, you started to see these silos of information start to dissolve and this sharing. Now, we continue to get better. There's still uh, times where we, we don't do as, as, as well as we probably should, and it's, it's a learning process. But this is just another example of that. This is where yep. everybody sees it as it's a joint effort, it's a joint mission, we have to work together. And when you're right in the middle of it, sometimes it's difficult, as you said, to see that change until you pull back and you see how things have changed over the last 20 years. Absolutely. And that's where, it, it's for me, it's gratifying because you know that, at least in some way, you played a, a part in making that happen. Yes. And actually, that's, uh, that's one of my biggest, uh, you know, biggest... Um, Sources of, of of pride, being involved in that, being involved with uh, you know with border patrol pre uh, strategy, and then understanding how a strategy is developed and implemented, and just looking at the uh, at, at the outcomes of everything that uh, that we do. I think that to me has been the most exciting, and I'm very very excited right now because of the technology advances, the partnerships that uh, that the secretary's pushing. Uh, with Mexico, with Central America. I'm excited to see what is going to come out of that. I think we're going to do a very good job going after the criminal element that is behind the border issues. So let's talk about that. You mentioned the approaches, and when we say approaches, we're talking about the approach to the border. Right. And so this is where enter our uh, foreign partners, right. the, the foreign governments that, that we work hand-in-hand -hand with because they have a stake in this game too. It affects their country just as much as it does us. You have been at the forefront of that piece, dealing with Mexico, Correct. the governments of Central and South America. Talk a little bit about how that benefits our border security, getting them involved and leveraging the consequences that they can deliver and, and adding depth to our border. Yeah, so we're talking about a common operating picture between U.S. agencies and, uh, and uh, U.S. Uh, departments, whole of government approach, right? When we start looking at this regionally, um, we have some very common interest uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere. So it's critical, it's indispensable really, uh, to be working with our partners, uh, not only in Mexico and Central America, but throughout the continuum of the, uh, of the immigrate or the immigration continuum. Um, I think, again, not only is it, uh, is it critical, but the further away that we identify the problem, um, and, and we're talking about prioritized threats. Mm -hmm. uh, the, we're in a better position to make sure that we mitigate the risk to the United States as far as uh, uh, anybody that's trying to come over here and, uh, and do harm to us, right? Um, and that's, um, that approach is, is for all threats, too. Uh, we have to have, first and foremost, an understanding of what's happening, account for everything that's happening. What are the means, the opportunity, the intent 
of people and, and, and things that are coming uh, towards us, and then working with our partners to develop these regional strategies uh, so we can enhance the security throughout the continuum and not just focus on the immediate border. The immediate border, we absolutely have to have. That's a foundation. Uh, that's a foundation to border security, right? Mm -hmm. That's the last line of defense, really. I don't call it the first line of defense. That's the last line of defense. All this, uh, these efforts that continue throughout the continuum, um, that, uh, th those are points where we have to be able to identify who and what is coming at us. So we talk about defense in depth. It's, it's pushing that effort out away Correct. from the border so that you're right. The first time we encounter the threat should not be at our borders. We should do everything we can to know about it and prevent it before it gets there. Correct. So let's let's drop that down into into the result into layperson speak. So you have the the Jason Owens cartel, and I'm operating in the in in Mexico. Uh, by having partnerships with Mexico and their law enforcement and military actively involved, all of a sudden it's not safe for me in Mexico to operate either. Absolutely. So I can't find any sanctuary or or easy place to ply my trade. Eventually, I'm going to stop or I'm going to get arrested. As long as they have an outlet, a place to go to escape to, they escape consequence. And that's what we're trying to take away from them by leveraging our foreign policy. Absolutely. And in the very tactical level, uh, and you're very familiar with these uh, initiatives, uh, for example, the Sabuscas in initiative, mm -hmm. that is a, just a joint initiative with Mexico and make sure that the, that the criminals that are exploiting the immediate border uh, don't have a safe haven in Mexico or don't have a safe haven in the U.S. It's, again, having that common operating picture on who's doing what illegally uh, along the border and make sure that uh, they are not comfortable anywhere uh, along, that, uh, you know, the, along the border uh, on both sides of the border. It's fascinating stuff. Talking about, uh, it, it makes me wonder what we're going to look like 20 years from now. You know, every time we graduate a class, we talk about passing the baton off to them and knowing what it was like when we started and, and what it's like now and what they're going to take it to. Uh, I use the example talking about uh, our, our scope trucks, and I can remember driving around. Those are the infrared vehicles that they right. can look out in the field and zoom. And we had the little uh, Atari joystick that we would move mm -hmm. uh, move the, uh, the camera around with. And... Last I saw, they had the uh, the PS4 uh, game controllers and a whole lot more capability. That uh, they just it's they grew up doing it and it's second nature. Something as simple as that, using the uh, unmanned uh, uh, drones, the the small uh, unmanned aircraft, uh, they're out there flying those things around, providing their own air support. Now uh, we have sensor technology that far exceeds when you and I were were out in the uh, in the field. That's a good thing. We want the next generations to be better. Yeah. To uh, uh, to address the threat yeah. of today. That is something that I get to see here at the Academy and you get to see in your role that uh, it makes you feel good because you know the organization is going to be in good hands whenever we uh, we do move on to, to other things in, the, in, in a happy retirement. Yes. Let's talk about you for a second. So, Class 200. Correct. Class champ. Mean Green 2.0 will stop the flow from Mexico. I mean, <laughs> just like that. We're getting that. <laughs> and 35 years later? Almost mission accomplished. Right? <laughs> yes, yeah. So, still stay in touch with your with your classmates. You know, I uh, my classmates are retired. I'm the I'm the last uh, agent from the class 200 that is in uh, service. I do stay in touch with uh, some of my retired uh, classmates. Mm -hmm. So, yes. So we talk a little bit about the friendships and the bonds that form doing this job, and, and people that wear this uniform. And and I know, I mean. I consider you a, a, a good friend, and, and uh, I'm very glad, no matter how much of a hard time I give you sometimes, <laughs> be, uh, uh, very fortunate to be able to get to work with you. And uh, It's hard to describe that aspect of the law enforcement professional, profession, and especially the Border Patrol. There's that bond that, uh, that, that you make that even in retirement, it makes people want to stay close. You know, we have people that retire all the time that, that stay in orbit around the Border Patrol because that's, that's a, an extended family. I assume that's true for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think uh, I often uh, think about what is it? What is uh, what is that something that we have uh, kept intact, right? So I was talking to the agents that are graduating tomorrow. I said, to this day, I can fly into Dallas Airport or Houston Airport if I see a group of agents sitting on the table without uniform or without knowledge of who they are. I can pick them out uh, with pretty high probability, mm -hmm. right? And, and it is, it's just the interaction 
uh, that they have, that the, that the camaraderie that we establish. And I think, uh, I think there's a lot of factors to it, but man, we've ridden those trails, we've laid in in those uh, spots where it's just, you know, the, the, the small group of agents uh, talking to each other, dealing with challenges, for example, uh, in, uh, in Rio Grande Valley when we, uh, we were uh, experiencing uh, high traffic. I just remember driving around with the agents and they're making calls, a group of agents with a lot of migrants on the ground, they're making calls uh, on who needs medical screening or who needs to, if they have to call an ambulance or whatever, and they're totally codependent upon each other to, to get the job done. And, and I think that's, that's something that we do very, very well. You've done an amazing job in keeping that, uh, you know, that border, uh, border Patrol culture uh, alive. And it's, it's just an exciting thing to do because it's, um, even with social media and all these, uh, these things that are supposedly deteriorating the, uh, the human interaction, I think Border Patrol agents are still chanting their class chants and, uh, mm-hmm. And, and, and speaking the same lingo and, and telling uh, border stories, you know? I do, too. I, so you got to do the patch run with your class today, right. 1158, and that was the first patch run that you've got to uh, participate in. What would you think? I think it was awesome. I think the uh, the, the Camp Chigas uh, initiative is, is huge. Um, I look forward to talking to them uh, to tonight because it's we talk about the core values of uh, vigilance, service to country, integrity. Of course, our motto of honor first, but it's not something that you can hand a paper to them. Is read it and make sure that you live by these values, right? And what you're doing at the academy throughout the process, through those runs, to having those small group uh, discussions, I, I think that is uh, that's a way of for them to internalize these core values. What, who we are as an organization, the mission speaks for itself. Border security is national security, right? And, and so we spoke about that uh, uh, today, that everything that we do while we're on duty is a key piece of the puzzle in making sure that we're keeping this country safe. So when you bring those discussions and then you talk about the mission and they're going to go out in the field and perform the mission, um, I think that just internalizes and it, it's, it becomes an intrinsic uh, motivation to do what they're doing day in and day out. Do will we have some challenges? Sure. Hey, human beings, we're not uh, we're not perfect, right? But it's very very important that they understand who we are as an organization, who they are as individuals, and how they contribute to the national security mission via the border security mission. One thing that I'd like to mention, uh, Chief, um, because uh, there was one general in the military that told me this is that. Do not focus on what we missed. For example, if we missed narcotics or we missed a group of, uh, of uh, migrants, um, we can always get better and assess and how we can do better. But just picture a border that, what would that border look like without the Border Patrol? Scary thought. That, that is a scary thought. So every agent out there doing their job is contributing hugely to the border security mission that in turn becomes a national security mission. Couldn't have said it better. So you talked about uh, the CBP's core values and that really dovetails into <clears throat> the next thing I want to ask you about and that is our motto, our guiding principle for the U.S. Border Patrol, which is two simple words. It's honor first. And you talked to the trainees of class 1158 about that a little bit today. but. Get a chance for everybody to hear from you, the the second most senior Border Patrol agent in service today, 35 years of service. What does honor first mean for you in your life? Man, it's, um, believe it or not, as simple as a question uh, that, uh, that that question is, it's, it's a very profound question, right? So we all come with different values. We all were raised different. Um, everybody has... A thorough understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, that's individual values. Um, so, the way I was brought up is, if you did something wrong, you were going to get you were going to get a good spanking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you actually, having grown up in the border, I saw right and wrong quite a bit. I actually saw, 
you know, friends or even relatives that take the wrong road mm -hmm. and where they would end. And then I saw other ones that joined, for example, the military. I was honored to do that as well. Um, join the military, get into law enforcement in, in my uh, case, and, and you establish a very clear line of what is right or wrong. So when we talk about honor first, that is a mnemonic uh, motto that reminds you of what is right and what is wrong. And then we use a lot of uh, supporting um, discussions. For example, you know, if what you're doing, if it came out on the paper, what would your family think or what would your superior things or what would your peers things, right? So there's a lot of things uh, that keep our conscience on the right side. And I think honor first is really knowing what is right as per the uh, organization. And I think it's just a good, uh, good initiative and good motto to reinforce like, hey, we do this for a reason. We're doing this for freedom. We're doing this for national security. And then we're doing it through border security. So I know that the Border Patrol uh, has a very uh, deep meaning for you and, and in your life. You were a member of BORTAC, graduated class six. You know, I think that was one of the easier classes that uh, they graduated. The, uh, you've been to Central and South America. The, uh, you've done numerous deployments with them. Uh, you've moved up through the ranks. You've, you said you probably moved 15 times throughout the course of your yes, career. Sir. And, oh, by the way, one of your sons is a Border Patrol agent. Yes. That's got to be a tremendous source of pride. You got to pin his badge. Yes, I did. How was that? Oh, it was awesome. It was uh, it was amazing. Um, and again, I mean, we can take this conversation in a, in a whole bunch of uh, different ways, right? But uh, a lot of time when your kids are getting into those teenage uh, years, you think that they're not listening. You think that they're not watching. <laughs> they're watching every move you make and every word that we say. Uh, so my son, very very proud of him. Uh, he is one of these techies that takes up uh, computers apart and does all the targeting and stuff like that. So huge, uh, huge uh, pride. Uh, my daughter, as we speak today, mm -hmm. uh, she joined the Marines at the age of uh, 17. Uh, she's deploying to Japan now. And I think, and I want to believe that it's because they have seen me uh, from the time they were born, that uh, the commitment uh, to the mission, to our country, and to uh, and to our uniform, and to our agency, the Border Patrol, and I think that's uh, that's just a huge source of pride for me. I, I can't imagine not. I mean, so they have this example to follow, and some obviously big shoes to fill. I have to think that, and if you ask them, I'm sure they would say that impacted uh, their life choices. And I think that's something, probably as a parent, we can be most proud of. And kind of one step removed from that, you know. We have the trainees that are looking up to folks like you and, and seeing what you're doing to lead this organization. So you have them here now. They're listening to you and, uh, and the agents out in the field. What are some words of encouragement or some advice uh, from your experience that, you're, that you've been through all these years that you, could, that you could impart on them to help them along their career? So one of the things, uh, and I look forward to, uh, to the fireside chat today, I, I want to leave them with something that is uh, actually something that you can apply. And I am going to uh, to uh, talk about the uh, the core values, and then one thing that we're getting a lot better again, uh, and the commissioner is very very focused on this is resiliency, right? Resiliency of the of the workforce, um, and in that context, is that how do we we can identify the signs when somebody's withdrawing or changes in behavioral patterns and the such? But the big question is, what do we do? beyond what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Again, just like the mission, how do we go from, from what we're doing right now and, 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 and getting better? Uh, I want to truly focus uh, them on that, that, uh, that they uh, look in the mirror, you know, uh, ask themselves what is their purpose, you know, how they feel or how do they align with the core values of CBP, uh, how, do, how do they align with the uh, motto of honor first, and just you cannot tell people uh, to do when we're talking about core values you cannot just tell people hey you're going to do this it has to become an intrinsic uh, again motivation to do the right thing at the right time and I think uh, the small group discussions are huge uh, for that and I look forward to talking to them about that. I do too and I, I want you to talk about one more thing and that is uh, from a resiliency standpoint <clears throat> it's our families that we bring along on this yes. journey with us and I know that's important for you too but how important has that been in keeping you in the game and keeping you in, uh, in the career and able to focus and, and do the job that you do? 
for me, it's a, such a huge support mechanism, remembering that they're there with me and relying on them. Talk about that for you. Yeah. So actually, I'm going to frame that one uh, in, in this context is that, um, you know, we talked about the mission and the evolution of, of, of the mission. When we came in, or when I came in, Mr. Owens, <laughs> um, we did not have a lot of these talks. Actually, the culture and law enforcement in general was like, hey, you're tough. You're supposed to be above stress. And, of course, as we gotten smarter through the, uh, through the years, um, and I look I look back to, uh, you know, to my personal life and my professional life. Like, if I had this information back then, uh, things would have been different. Uh, different. Mm -hmm. But one of the things, and, and probably not taught, is uh, from the beginning, and it was, uh, it was my son, uh, Manny, that was, uh, that's in the Border Patrol, in a very young age, he said, hey, Daddy, you're a cardboard daddy. <clears throat> and I get emotional about that yeah. because when you're in the field, and you're doing the mission and you're getting involved in all these things, at the dinner table, you may be processing all that information and you're removed. You may not think that you're removed from the family conversation, but they notice. Yeah. And when he said that, that just triggered. It's like, hey, I really have to learn how to leave this at home. Man, that's so true. I mean, this yeah. at work and be me at home. And I think for me, that was a very good balance because uh, if you uh, if you talk to anybody of my uh, my family, um, you know I'm I'm a very much of a clown at home, uh, and that doesn't mean that I you know I don't have the same level of seriousness and commitment to the mission, but you really have to identify that that you're you're, you're two different roles in the professional roles that we find ourselves. And then, you know, you're still that father at, the, at home. And sometimes those wake-up calls from the yeah. ones that, that we love the most are exactly what we need. Yeah. And uh, and you're right. I can think, of, as you were saying that, you, know, you can be with your family, your friends, and you'll find yourself thinking about something yes. at work, and you're not present in the moment. And that's an active process to work on and make sure that you're able to make that, uh, that disconnect yeah. and be there for the ones that really matter the most. Yeah. Huge. And, and so how do we... We don't have the answer. I don't believe we have the answer yet. But how do we get these agents that are coming into the organization to be cognizant of it, to know and to understand that these things happen just because we're human beings? Life stresses. We're all going to go through life stresses, one form or another. But how do we uh, create that resiliency? Again, getting way better. Um, but I think we still have a lot of ground to, uh, to cover. Well, and I think the first step is having leaders that recognize that that's something that needs to be worked on. And, and that, that comes from self-reflection. Yeah. That comes from being big enough to say, this is a mistake that has been made, yeah. and we need to work and get better for the betterment of people that, that are behind us. Yeah. And that's, uh, I think that's the most important first step. Thanks for sharing that. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Chief, uh, it's been a, a true pleasure. Uh, you know, I'd, we've known each other for a while now, and I've looked up to you for, for, for years. And uh, Thank you. And I'm, I'm quite tall. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I know class six was a lot easier than class 15, <laughs> but, but I, you know, you're one of the ones that, uh, that, that through the years has, has continued to make this organization what it is, and I'm very thankful to you for it, and, and I look forward to seeing what else happens out there as, uh, in D.C. as you fight that fight each and every day. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it again for another episode of What's Important Now. Everybody stay safe out there. We'll talk again soon on the first. Thank you.